Hello, and you're very welcome to Mind You, where I dive into how different people use different ways to self-care. I'm Brian Barnes from Brian Barnes Wellbeing, where I partner with people to create unique well-being solutions. Today, I'm delighted to be talking to Mitch Davidowitz. Mitch has a huge passion for serving and minding others through his work as a psychotherapist, as a writer, as a photographer, and an inspirational teacher based in Boston. So Mitch, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate the invitation, Brian. I really love the work that you're doing. Happy to be a part of it. Nice one, Mitch. Thank you so much. And you're so welcome. And Mitch, can you start off by telling me a bit about yourself and how you got to here? So there's a couple of streams that brought me to what I'm doing now. Uh, the first of them was my training as a psychotherapist. And so I have been practicing uh, seeing individuals, couples, families for the last 43 years. And uh Part of that has also been, as an educator, one area of expertise is grief care, bereavement care, and so have lectured around the United States on grief and loss, training helpers, healthcare professionals, how to show up with courageous presence for those facing loss. The other parallel track in terms of how I got here is that I was introduced to Vipassana meditation, commonly known now as mindfulness meditation, back in 1974. And so I began an intensive journey. Every six months, I would go off somewhere in the United States to do a retreat, an intensive meditation retreat for either... 10 days, a month, or three months at a time. And so over the last now almost 50 years, I have been practicing mindfulness meditation. And so the combination of my clinical understanding, decades of being a therapist, and the training, my own spiritual path, through the Buddhist teachings, through mindfulness, has led me to now becoming a writer um, and writing globally uh, to teach in both of these areas. Wow. So that's how I got to where I am. Wow, Mitch. Thank you so much for sharing that journey with me. And, you know, again, that amazing toolkit that you have, which, you know, are, are so, both so relevant these days, you know, your psychotherapy background and, you know, grief, bereave, grief bereavement work and mindfulness, which is, you know, it's, it's such a hot topic at the moment, but that's because it works, as you know, as, you know, like the neuroscience tells us, that's because it works um, and, it, you know, it, it's so good for you. So thank you for sharing that with me. And Mitch, diving deeper into how you mind others. As you said, like you're, you're a psychotherapist, you are a, you know, a writer, a photographer, inspirational teacher, but diving deeper into your practice as a psychotherapist when you know when someone comes to you kind of day to day whether it's an individual or whether it's a couple where do you start off with them you know i really begin with 
and I certainly call in my photographic skills, ironically, to this, which is I look to see the picture of someone's life and the relationship to themselves that they present, right? What is happening in their life? What is in the picture? What is out of the picture? And then most importantly, the composition. You know, in order to be a great photographer, you need to be able to compose a picture that is uh, compelling or appealing. In our life, we compose the stories of our life, our relationships with others, whether we feel hopeful or not, our sense of self-worth or low self-esteem. And so I listen deeply to, for the composition. How has someone orchestrated their life? And what is the result of that? And then secondly, Brian, I listen to see what is the nature of the suffering that has brought them to me? What are the entanglements, whether it's the entanglements of their mind, the stories they're generating, or the entanglements of heart? And how have these entanglements led to their suffering? And in what way do they need help to disentangle and to free themselves to recompose a picture that has more meaning and more peace? I would I say that's, that's how I begin. I love that, Mitch. And I love the an analogy you use of a photograph. Yeah. You know, you're kind of... I suppose, you know, like you're zooming out and taking a look at the bigger picture. And because I suppose most people, you know, when they're, they, they hit a speed bump, they can only see the small picture. They kind of, you know, and you're in that kind of fight or flight mode, freeze, fawn. You're, you know, like all you can see is, is the small details. So you're able to kind of zoom out and see the bigger picture. Yes. And one aspect of that picture, Brian, is the roots, the original soil with which we grew up. And I don't spend years, as people once did, analyzing the history of someone's childhood, but we need to understand in what way the, the voice of the past, lessons learned, wounds experienced, possibilities, felt or not felt, began early in life. And so a current crisis, without someone knowing it, can be landing on something old. And understanding that history is crucial in the healing and the disentanglement. Absolutely, absolutely. Because Mitch, as I told you, I I've worked in mental health for thirty years now myself as a you know general nurse, mental health nurse, and I have done a lot of research in mental health and you know that kind of trauma led care, which tells us that at least ninety percent of any mental illness is due to childhood trauma. Right, right, and so the the very gentle, just exploring. 
it wouldn't have to just be trauma. It could simply be someone who did not feel seen or heard within their family. And so spending time understanding the, the largest of the pictures. And again, that includes someone's history. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, Mitch, like, you know, like, and I know on my own journey, um, I've been on my own journey with, with all this. And, you know, I think a lot of people can be reluctant to look back at the past because, you know, like, you know, they don't want to blame the parents that you know, there's, you know, there's a kind of, I suppose, you know, there's, they don't want to rock the boat. Do you find that? Well, I, absolutely. And I think that we want to be careful looking at the past is not to get some kind of indictment of someone that did this or that in our life. Yeah. Thus, one can spend years in therapy and suffer from what's called chronic insight. They could understand what happened, but have nothing change. And so, again, it's really more for the purposes of clarity not about blame or creating excuses for why we do what we do in current time. Absolutely. Uh, And go ahead, Brian. No, it it does help with the roadmap forward, you know, is to look, is to look back. You have to do it, don't you? Yes, absolutely. To, to look and see how did one's current story, one's sense of self image, of self-love or not, what are the roots of that? What are some of the original seeds that got planted that are still growing? And But beyond that, it's really what is happening in current time. You know, the empowerment of having a clinical practice informed by mindfulness is that we look to the here and now to see what is someone doing in present time to reinforce their suffering. And, you know, quite honestly, without any understanding of one's mind, without any understanding of how to calm oneself, oftentimes we're really left at the mercy of our emotions or thoughts that take us, uh, you know, on adventures we don't need to be on. Yeah, literally, I suppose what, what's talked about a lot, it's that kind of monkey mind, isn't it? Yes, yes. And so, you know, when I was, I began my uh, spiritual meditation practice at age 20 while I was getting a degree in psychology and I was learning a lot of theories but didn't know anything about the mind. And so just sitting, watching my breath, and watching that mind, that monkey mind, as you said, race all over the place. And the empowerment found in just being able to calm myself, calm the mind, has remained with me now for almost 50 years. Absolutely. I actually saw a clip this morning. Do you know, is it Andrew Huberman? 
No, so yeah. not, not, not Andrew Huberman. It was Sam Harris talking to Andrew Huberman talking about mindfulness. Yes. I love those guys. And he was saying that, you know, if you're not being mindful, you know, we all have 60,000 thoughts a day. And he said, it's like being under, it's like being under a spell. Those thoughts, yeah. it's just like being under a spell of those thoughts, isn't it? And, and, and so part of that spell is that we find ourselves thrust into an imaginary future that has not happened and getting anxious or frightened or whatever it is that occurs about thoughts in the future, or we have these thoughts from the past that has long since ended that may still be holding us hostage in our life. And so the ability to be able to come to the present moment and be in charge of our thoughts rather than those kind of whipping us here and there, past and future, is very powerful. I certainly encourage everyone to experiment and explore what is mindfulness meditation? What can happen in it? And would it serve you in your life? Exactly, yeah, absolutely. And Mitch, I suppose I'm, you know, like, I suppose a, a little bit behind you, I've been kind of practicing mindfulness for about 25 years um and when, when i hear when i when i talk about mindfulness and i teach mindfulness people say that oh I, I can't do it i've tried it before but again like everyone's mind wanders i think that's the one thing to kind of you know that bit of reassurance for people that you know like you know like it's not like that you're kind of you know you've you kind of you, you press a button with mindfulness and your thoughts stop like you know it, it, the fact that it's the practice it's in the practice it's like flexing a muscle isn't it yes and and so just to really simplify it um because that word is thrown around all over the place that mindfulness is the ability to do what you're doing and know that you're doing it and so that when you're doing the dishes you're there with the dishes. You're not thinking about the errands at the store you're going to be doing three hours later. Yeah. The other thing is that perhaps we've had the experience of training a puppy and we tell the puppy to come and stay here, here. And or we've had that experience with a child where we've picked a child up from some other place and brought them back to some other location. Mindfulness is the ability to exercise our muscle and pick up the mind and bring it back to the present moment. It's not anything more mysterious than that. Absolutely. And again, and I use this kind of reassurance for myself, when your mind does wander, and it will, to give yourself a break, you know, to, to kind of to be compassionate with yourself that, you know, it, it's going to wander, but like, you know, like it, it's, it's the mindfulness is catching it wandering and coming back to the present. Right. And one crucial aspect of that, Brian, is that people believe that when they meditate, they need to get rid of thoughts and that if they're doing it correctly, the mind is silent. That is not the case. Yeah. We don't develop a adversarial relationship with thoughts or feelings we simply notice the mind has wandered and gently come back to the present moment, which would be the breath. That's Absolutely. all. Absolutely. And I, I have heard a saying that, you know, the, the only time your, your, your thoughts stop is when 
you're dead. Other than that, we, we all have 60,000 thoughts a day. And as I was leading on from, from that point, Mitch, coming back into and looking at the work that you do with bereavement and grief, where did that interest start off? You know, it began quite under, unexpectedly. My mother died when I was 26 uh, of lung cancer without a lot of notice. And at the time I was training in my first master's program to be a therapist, but I was so shocked by how people responded to loss, how little understanding there was, how many people out of their own discomfort began to encourage me to get on with my life. And so I was so startled by that, that I did a research study about how do we speak to people in grief? It wound up getting published globally back in 1984. And then I committed myself out of that experience to teaching healthcare, mental health professionals, and others how to compassionately show up for those in loss. And so I have been lecturing on that topic uh, since 1984. And now writing about that and other topics, but it grew out of my direct experience and that of countless others of not understanding what to do with someone in grief. Absolutely, absolutely. And again, Mitch, I, I told you before we started recording, you know, like I, my mother passed away seven weeks ago and I am currently in that roller coaster so if you were to kind of share let's say you know some kind of you know golden nuggets or you know like maybe kind of to break it down a little bit for people because we all have are, you know, are going to have grief in our lives at some point you know what are some of the kind of stepping stones that you know people could use both in dealing with someone who's grieving and someone who's grieving so we'll start with someone who's grieving first here the most important to aspect of mourning is not resisting the experience of grief. If you're in an adversarial relationship with the emotion of grief, you will suffer more. And when my father died some years back, I realized that I needed to let go of any kind of resistance to the suffering to the grief. Grief doesn't care what you're doing. I might be in the middle of shaving and then there would be a sudden surge of sadness. I would put down my razor, I would sit down and just allow the sadness to come. I would allow myself to cry, the emotion would pass and then I'd get back up and do my shaving. And so, the key phrase here is to befriend one's sorrow. And you might say, wow, Mitch, that sounds kind of crazy. Grief is so painful. Why would I want to feel it? Well, the resistance to feeling it, the avoidance of it, the attempt to suppress it makes it worse, makes it harder. And so you can attempt to sweep it under the rug and cover it up. But time 
by itself will not heal grief. It will show up at some other time, years later, months later, decades later. And so for the mourner to be a good host, when grief arises, if you can, unless you're in the middle of a work meeting, allow yourself to compassionately show up for your own sorrow without the judgment or the shame. Mm -hmm. Most people apologize when they start crying, I'm sorry. There is nothing to be ashamed of in grief. It doesn't make you a stronger man to not cry. In fact, it takes a lot of strength to be able to let yourself have emotion. Mm -hmm. Your second question, Brian, in terms of helping people, the simplest thing to do is, A, don't give the bereaved a reason why they shouldn't feel so sad. So, for example, people might say to a parent whose child has died, well, at least you have other children, or at least they didn't suffer, or don't question God's will. And many people who are grieving feel that not only are they mourning, but they're not free to be sad. Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, don't say anything that tries to take away or spin the experience. And second is simply to validate it. People will say, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. All you need to do is listen for what the mourner is saying and name it. You were very close to your grandmother. You were hoping for a boy. You really miss your father. Your sister was the most important person in your life. Validating, naming, empathizing, and affirming. That's all. You do not need to rescue people from the experience of grief. When you stop demonizing sorrow, yeah. then you allow people simply to have it without trying to take it away. I love that, Mitch, because again, you know, and I've been in that situation myself with other people, you, you kind of, you don't know what to say and there's an awkwardness. And I think, you know, as you were saying, like just to, you know, to, to say nothing, just even just to be there with the person. Right. There is the discomfort because it touches our own sadness. Mm. If you could lose a child or a father or a brother I can too. Yeah. And it, it brings up perhaps our own grief or fear of grief, or fear of mortality. There's nothing special to do except letting go of the idea you need to fix yeah. the person's grief. That's yeah. all. And as you like, like and the, the, the feel, the, the feeling that you need to do anything at all, again, just to be with the person. And yeah. And, you know, kind of probably, I would say to people, kind of less is more. Yes, that's right. But not to be afraid to ask a simple question. Yeah. Tell me about your brother. Tell me about your father. 
help me to understand who he was to you. What did, what did he mean? What did you love to do with him? Invite the person to tell the story of who died in their life and what meaning they had. Yeah. Wow. I love that, Mitch. And again, coming back to your analogy at the start about that kind of bigger picture to, you know, like give them space to, to, to create a bigger picture of the person that has died and to celebrate. Absolutely. Absolutely. It really, the, our work with those with who are grieving is to honor their loss, to honor their wound, to honor their right to grieve without giving them some reason why they should not. It's not any more complicated than that. Absolutely. And coming back to that grieving process, that roller coaster, you know, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Cooper Ross, like any, any advice on kind of navigating that roller coaster? Because as we said earlier, like it comes in waves, it's like a roller coaster. And as you said, it doesn't care where you are or what you're doing. So I, you know, certainly first and foremost, we have to work with our fear of vulnerability. Mm. There's nothing more vulnerable than the grief that arises out of loss. And so the very mindset of allowance, allowing yourself to have it, will diminish the intensity of it. That's one. The other is, when it does feel very intense, you may need to sit down, you may need to move yourself to a calmer place where you allow yourself the freedom to cry. If you're in a place, perhaps you're at work and don't have that option, maybe you go into the restroom and go in and grab some tissues and just allowing yourself to sob. We cannot schedule grief. You cannot look on the calendar and say, I will grieve Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays nor can we expect ourselves to be over it after a few weeks. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it takes months for the reality of the loss just to be felt. So yes, it does feel like a roller coaster. And if you need to sit down and just be with the experience, grounding yourself while it moves through you, after 40, 45 years of working with people in grief, I've never met someone who didn't stop crying after some point. And, and so like the clouds in the sky, when grief arises in you, you need to know it's moving. Mm-hmm. You will not be stuck in it. It will pass through you if you get out of the way. And again, Mitch, I think that's the kind of scary part of it is that, you know, like you kind of feel, you know, and even as much as I know about grief and mental health kind of, you know, logically, when you're in it, it kind of, you know, it it can be so overwhelming. And, you know, um, also, as I said to you earlier on, you know, I had a, a, you know, like um, a difficult relationship with my mother. And I think, you know, as you talked about kind of other people, 
given yourself, given you a space to grief, to grieve. If you've had maybe a difficult relationship with someone, it's about giving yourself that space because, yeah. you know, could have, you know, like, let's say, you know, whatever about the relationship, um, you know, like, but to, to, to still, you know, to know, to recognize and acknowledge that you're still going to be grieving. Yes. You know, Brian, it's really important that people do a little bit of reading about what grief is because it's quite a foreign experience, if you will. And when it comes up, when you start seeing your loved one in crowds or dreaming about them or feeling like you're going crazy, it's very important to have some knowledge about what you will be going through, what you might be going through. There's a wonderful book by Teresa Rando, R-A-N-D-O, called how to go on living when someone you love dies. You can get it on paperback and Amazon. And she goes through really the roadmap of what grief includes. And I encourage people who are mourning to educate themselves about the process. Okay, wow. Cool. Thanks for that, Mitch. And Mitch, in relation, and you, you touched on it there about, you know, the tears w- will stop and like th- those waves of grief, you know, do kind of become less intense. But, you know, like, I suppose that kind of timeless question, does time heal? Time by itself does not heal. You know, that myth that just wait and eventually it'll go away. I have counseled people whose loved ones died 50, 60, 70 years ago, and the grief is as fresh as it was the day the person died. And so the combination of allowing the wounds of time to help heal, but we need to allow ourselves to mourn. If you put it in the closet, if you avoid it, if you suppress your feelings, time will not by itself heal the wounds you will just be putting it somewhere else so the answer is no um that is just a myth just wait and eventually you'll be fine yeah no we, they, uh, to acknowledge it and process it i kind of I, i'm getting this picture of someone with a stone in their shoe and you know like if you, okay you can keep on walking you know and kind of almost kind of you know like take your mind off it but it's still there and the longer you walk with a stone in your shoe the more damage it does to your foot right and and you know if i know people are hesitant to reach out for help to someone but if you're struggling with a loss no matter when it is i encourage you to seek uh mental health support to help someone walk you through that territory that can be enormously helpful absolutely and i suppose to help people walk steady on unsteady ground by yes. you know by ventilating and talking about their experience yes absolutely well mitch thank you so much for sharing that with me and about the amazing work that you do and can you tell me now how you mind you well i you know that question is really crucial because You know, there's so much that we all deal with in our life. And there's an image I use of someone walking through a mist, not knowing they're getting wet, and then they're soaked at the end of it. And so many of us are enormously soaked 
with the stressors of our life. And so for myself, I meditate on a daily basis. That allows me to regenerate. I get massage regularly to deal with the stress in my body. Um, I'm out in nature taking walks throughout a week. The other is that I, in my daily life, I'm staying grounded in the present moment. So I'm not racing up ahead as to what's going to happen. And one of the places that I take care of myself is by anchoring in the now. The now is a refuge of calm and a place to soothe myself. The other thing, Brian, which is really crucial is that there is an unspoken pandemic happening globally, really, that is hardly ever talked about. And that is the pandemic of self-hatred or self-loathing or not liking oneself or judging oneself or being harsh with ourselves. There's so much uh, cruelty at times towards ourself that our suffering becomes more difficult to manage. And for myself, I understood early in my life when I first began meditating that this living is so hard, how can I be anything but loving to myself? And so on a daily practice, on a daily basis, I practice self-acceptance, self-love, being gentle with myself, being kind to myself. I am not just taking care of other people, but I am regenerating my own heart by being very calm and very kind to myself. I do not make it worse by adding um, judgment of what I do and the mistakes I make. Uh, and so those are some of the tools I use, Brian, to look out for myself and have my back. Um, Wow, thanks for sharing those with me, Mitch. And again, I agree with you, like we're all swimming in the sea of stress and a sea of, you know, kind of um, self-criticism and it comes from society and it comes from the media and, you know, like it's almost, we, we've been, like, you know, like we're swimming in the sea of it. So, and look at like, you know yourself and I know myself, self-compassion, self-love, self-kindness, like those words can roll off the tongue. And, you know, I think some people can, you know, like they've actually almost become immune to it because, you know, like, you know, it just seems so kind of, you know, far-fetched or kind of, you know, but like it's about baby steps. That's why I say to people, it's about, you know, being self-kind, self-compassionate and, and kind of, you know, like doing that self-care and kind of healing from the inside out. But it's all about baby steps. Well, you know, very well said, Brian. And coming back to the beginning of our conversation about mindfulness, that since we all know our minds can say anything and everything to us, the empowerment that comes with a mindfulness meditation is that we're free to not believe everything the mind says. And so that one of the ways we can deal with 
self-hatred, self-judgment is not just talking about self-compassion, but doing it by cultivating a mindfulness practice. So you're not identifying with thoughts that are harsh and cruel towards yourself. Absolutely, absolutely. Like mindfulness is such, a, you know, it's, it's, it's such an important foundation, isn't it? Absolutely. It is the foundation of being able to navigate this world while having our back. You know, we spend more time understanding the parts of our car than we do our own minds and how it drives us around at times recklessly. And so I think that amongst all the things I said today in this podcast, one of the things that's most important is developing a befriending, accepting relationship with ourselves. Self-love is not just an interesting concept. It is the foundation of living a life that has purpose and meaning. Absolutely. And I'll share a quote that I shared with you earlier on, uh, Mitch, by a guy called John O'Donoghue. I'm sure a lot of people have heard of him. He wrote a book called Anamkara. And he says, you know, to be excessively gentle with yourself. Yes. And, uh, you know, the, again, kind of, you know, just that kind of baby steps and just to be gentle and to be compassionate. And again, it's, you know, like, it, it's so worth doing and um, it's so beneficial. Well, look at Mitch, thank you so much for sharing with me that amazing work that you're doing and the amazing toolkit that you have and all, you know, like all the people that you're helping with that toolkit and, you know, how you mind you and where can people find you? Uh, people can find me online very easily. Just look it up. Uh, Mitch Davidowitz. It's spelled D-A-V-I-D-O-W-I-T-Z and communicate to me whether on LinkedIn or Facebook, uh, but they'll find me on the internet. Perfect. Well, Mitch, I'll put some, some, of the links, some of your links on this podcast, and I can tell people, like, I've read a lot of your work on LinkedIn, your articles around bereavement and grief, and they're so inspiring, and, you know, they're amazing, so I would encourage everyone to have a look at those. And Mitch, again, thank you so much for being so kind and so generous and sharing with me, you know, like your journey and the amazing work that you're doing and best of luck with everything that you do in the future. Thank you so much. I, again, appreciate your care for others to invite people onto your program that can offer some help and guidance uh, for such a life. Brilliant. Thanks, Mitch. All right. Bye-bye. so much for listening to mind you and i hope you've learned about the benefits of holistic self-care please like subscribe and follow mind you podcast wherever you listen to it and please share it so we can keep the ripple effect of holistic self-care going out to the world you can find me and mind you at brianbarnswellbeing.com and remember to mind